Let me pray again for just a second. Lord, you're the God of all life. Our breath is in your hand. All that we are or hope for the future, Lord, is all subject to you and your goodwill. Lord, I ask in Jesus' name that you'd use your word this morning to speak to each of us the things you mean to, not more or less. Help us to have ears to hear, Lord, and we pray that your word would have its effect in each one of us, that it would be active and alive, that it would reveal our hearts, that it would correct us or encourage us as each one needs. In Jesus' name, amen. How many here have read uh, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy? So, about three-fourths, okay. Years ago, at this church, I was giving a teaching, and I made the mistake of using the climax of that trilogy as my key illustration. And I kid you not, as I'm... As I'm... Yes, Kristen, I'm thinking of you. So as I'm giving my key point, there's two or three people who got up and ran out of my teaching because they hadn't read the book. They were in the midst reading the book. And I was, I was spoiling it for them, so they got up and ran out. It was really insulting. I felt really, really bad. Anyway, <clears throat> so most of you are familiar. I want to start with an opening illustration from the first of those three books, The Fellowship of the Ring, a couple of my favorite chapters, At the Sign of the Prancing Pony. If you've read this, you know you're right there with me. If you haven't, I'll do my best to explain it. But in the Fellowship of the Ring, there are these sort of half-sized human kind of creatures that are really fond of comfort and good food and those kinds of things. Those are the hobbits. And sort of into their world has spilled this element of danger because one of their members has ended up with this ring of power. And that's okay, sort of, but it was made by an evil lord, and the evil lord is looking for it. And that ring is passed to his nephew, Frodo. And Frodo and three of his friends, they're headed out of the peaceful setting of the Shire. And trouble's falling. They've got to get to Rivendell. They've got to get rid of this ring of power and sort of get on to their lives, their peaceful lives as they've known them all along. And before they can even get to Bree, this little town along the way, they've gone through all kinds of dangers already. And, you know, the question comes up, they're like fugitives on the road, and they've got a secret, and they know the evil Lord is after them, and and the question sort of comes up, who can they trust? Who's on their side? Because the enemy's out there too, and so the enemy's after them, but there will be some people along the line that can help them as well, but who can they trust? So, after night, they get to Bree, and they get to this pub, it's an inn, be our version of a hotel, I suppose, today. An inn and rooms to stay in. And there's a common room. And Frodo and the three little guys go out there to have a good time and share some pints with the locals and trade stories, you know. And, and Frodo unwittingly uh, puts on the ring and it makes him invisible. And everyone wonders what in the world is going on and who are these guys. And while they're in that common room, they see all different kinds of people, the hobbits like themselves, and they look harmless, but they see some other guys they're not too sure about. And one particular is this tall, lanky, dark guy shrouded in a cloak, tall boots, looks like he's seen better days. And he's called Strider, and he ends up in the hobbit's room. 
And he's trying to convince them that he is a person they should trust. And he's not having much luck with this. And he says, well, you know, I'll tell you some things that may be helpful, but I hope that you'll trust me and I'll take you down the road from here. And while they're talking, Frodo ends up with a letter that had supposed to have been delivered to him a long time prior, but just gets to him right there and he reads it. And his good friend, the wizard Gandalf, says, you may meet a friend of mine on the road named Strider. And so Strider says, well, that's me. Well, Sam Gamgee, Frodo's little friend, he's unconvinced. So you're Strider, maybe you killed the real Strider. Maybe you're just a plant and you're a fake. How do we know I can trust you? And, it, and Strider, this guy, it's a small room. These guys are half size anyway. He's a big, tall man. He stands up. He gets a gleam in his eye. His voice changes and he says, If I wanted what you have, I could take it now. But I am the real Strider. I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and if by life or death I can save you, I will. I'm the real thing. You can trust me. And in part you can trust me because this is my motivation. I'm here to serve you. And if I can do that in my life or if I have to lay down my life for yours, I'll go that far to save you. You can trust me, Strider. Today, as you guys, as you look at your life, as I look at mine, just ask the question, who can you trust and what can you trust? And that puts us into the passage we're in this morning. I hope you have a study sheet with you there, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 12 through 24. Who can you trust is a huge question in this passage this morning. And in Paul's ministry to this particular church, to the Corinthians, who can you trust looms as a very large question. Be in that text now. This is the New American Standard Version. If you're reading from something else, the words will be a little different. Paul continues this letter and he says, Our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. Paul says there's no hidden agenda in what I've spoken or what I've written to you prior. No hidden agenda, no doublespeak. And I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. I'll point out here just briefly, uh, pride is a key, a key term in this letter, and as it is in 1 Corinthians. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. But Paul here says, guys, uh, I'm your reason to boast in the presence of Christ, and you're my reason to boast in the presence of Christ. And this is a theme he talks about also in 1 Thessalonians, but uh, I'll just point that out here. We won't linger on it. He says, I'm proud of you. You should be proud of me, not only now, but later when we're all together face-to-face before the Lord Jesus In this confidence that we're each other's boast, confidence, glory, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing, that is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. So remember, he's in Ephesus. He he planned and he told them this. I'll come across the sea. I'll hit you at Corinth. I'll go up. Greece into Macedonia, that'd be Thessalonica and Philippi. Then I'll come back and see you again 
Then I'll sail across back down to Jerusalem. But he's changed that plan. Instead, he went straight up to Macedonia. He's only going to see them once, not twice. Therefore, was I not vacillating when I intended to do this? Was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no. In other words, saying yes and no at the same time. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus, called Silas elsewhere, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him, through Christ, is our amen to the glory of God through us. Jesus is God's yes. And to that we say, Amen, or yes, also. Now he who establishes with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm." Just to recap, Paul is sort of in hot water in this church because they, they don't trust him. A significant element of the church no longer trusts him. And it, the rationale goes something like this. He told them, I'm going to come to you. This was my plan, which he said here. I'm going to come to you first, then I'll go to Macedonia, then I'll come back, then I'll go to Jerusalem. And he didn't. He changed his plans. And so that element in Corinth that is antagonistic to Paul and he, by the way, he refers to them all throughout this letter. He never names any names, but when you get to chapters 11 and 12, he starts being very specific. We know they're Jewish, for instance. <clears throat> but these guys apparently are saying, look, this guy Paul, you can't trust him. He told you he was going to come and see you, and he changed his mind. He's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He's saying one thing, and he's doing another. He's saying yes and no at the same time. You can't trust this guy. And you know, not only that, but maybe some of the other things he was telling to you, you can't trust, shouldn't count on either. Because he talked to them, remember, Paul's the one that brought the gospel to Corinth. So Paul knows that what is at stake here is two things, really. One is his own credibility with the church. Because many of them at this point don't trust him. They don't have confidence in him. We've talked, when we introduced this letter, that He's trying to reestablish, if you will, his credibility through this letter. So many don't trust him already. And he's being accused by people who wish him no, no good. That's one concern. Paul wants them to be able to trust him because he's got more things God wants to say through him. But the other thing is he knows that if he is personally marginalized, it's not only just about Paul, it's really about what Paul has shared with them about Christ and about the Lord. So Paul knows if he's marginalized effectively by this other element in the church, they may reject elements of the truth about God and about Christ that Paul's already shared with them. And that's the real deal. So he's concerned because of this change of plans, he really did change his plans. He said, this is what I'm going to do. And then he changed his plans. He didn't, and he changed them. And that's where the rub has come in. So Paul says first, he says, you can trust me because you can check my motives and the way I've behaved towards you. If you have your study sheet there, this is point two. And you see this in verses 12, and then later in verses 23 through 20, 24. 
So when Paul says, hey, you can trust me, this is what he says, I have a clear conscience. Remember that our conscience is between us and the Lord. And so Paul is essentially saying, guys, my conscience before God is clear. I've acted towards you in ways that I believe God approves of. I've done nothing less than God thinks is okay or all right or worthy. My conscience is clear. Now he could say this and it wouldn't be true, potentially. But he says that's the first thing. My conscience is clear towards you. He says also that he had conducted himself towards them in holiness. And this goes a little bit along with that same thought about his conscience. Um, I'm living my life, Paul says, as one that has been set aside for God and God's purposes. And so everything I do, I do with the thought that this is for God, it's for His sake, I'm His steward, I'm following His directives, I'm about His business. I've conducted myself, we've conducted ourselves, he says, towards you in holiness with the thought that we belong to God and what we do has to measure up to God's standards. That's been our motive towards you. You can trust me. He also says godly sincerity. Remember, he's being accused of saying one thing and doing another, of of hypocrisy. And so he says, no, it's actually godly sincerity. I'm unfeigned. I have no hidden agenda. Nothing else is going on. I'm telling you the truth. He'll say later in chapter 2, verse 17, we're not like many peddling the Word of God. This is a reference to the other guys in Corinth, the naysayers there. We're not like them, he says, but as from sincerity we speak in Christ in the sight of God. No hidden agenda, no double speak, godly sincerity. That's the way I've behaved towards you. He says also there, we've behaved towards you in the grace of God. Paul knew something about God's grace. You remember this is the guy that was arresting the early church, Christians in the early church. And God knocks him down and saves him. Totally the grace of God that saved him. And Paul knows the weight and the glory and feels the benefit of that grace. And he says, guys, out of that same kind of grace that I've experienced from God, that's how I've behaved towards you. It's in the grace of God that I've conducted myself towards you. He makes a qualifier here in the negative when he says, our conduct to you was not in fleshly wisdom. You know, if you and I are behaving on our own, conducting things just as we see fit, it's, it might be a whim. You know, it might be a thought of the moment. It might seem like a good idea at the moment. Or remember, in Paul's day and in the Greek culture, it might be just the newest philosophy. This is the newest teacher on the block, and here's a new guy spewing a new, a new song, a new version of truth or reality. Here's the new version. So Paul says, when I was with you, it wasn't about fleshly whims. It wasn't about sort of anything carnal that I could just bring up on my own. Had nothing to do with anything like that. It wasn't in fleshly wisdom. And then moving down in the passage to verse 23, uh, Paul says, it was to spare you that I didn't come. Um, You know, he said there was this painful letter he'd written. And he and this church, they're at odds with each other. And things are not happy and they're not enjoying nice fellowship with each other. He'd written what he called was a painful letter. And, and emotions, I think, are raw here between he and this church. 
And anybody, if you're in a marriage, you know what this looks like. If you've had good friends in which your friendship has been disrupted, you know what this looks like. There's a strain here. And commentators differ on what exactly we should read into this. This is my take. Paul says the the conditions are such that we're already estranged from each other, emotionally at least. And I'm afraid that if I come back now, I'm going to have to say more hard things to you guys, and it's just going to get worse. And I'm going to give some time here for the dust to settle. And maybe for the emotions to be a little less raw. You know, sometimes time is a good thing. We'll talk about this actually in the next section in chapter 2. But sometimes a little distance in time is a good thing. And Paul says, so the reason I changed my plan, these are my motives, he says, you can trust me. But he says, the reason I changed my plan wasn't for my sake specifically, though he'll say in chapter 2, he was also sparing himself because it was going to be hard. But he said, I, I didn't come. I changed those plans because I didn't want to harm you. And I thought that if I came according to my original plan, it would not be to your best interest. It would prove hard for you in a way that was not beneficial. And so he says, I changed those plans. I'm being accused of double-mindedness, of saying yes and no at the same time. He said, the real reason was out of consideration for you. I didn't want you to be harmed. So I delayed my plans to come and see you. And then verse 24, last. Paul says, guys, uh, we're at work for your joy. Uh, I love this. Uh, Paul says the things we do, the things we say, the plans we make, at the end of the day, we're trying to be at work in a way that strengthens you in Christ's joy. Not about us. We're not getting anything out of this necessarily. But we're workers with you for your joy. So Paul says, you can trust me, even though I changed my plans. And even though others there in the church are talking ill about me because I changed my plans, Paul says, you can trust me because my conscience is clear, because my motives are pure, because I'm acting in a way that God can approve, because I'm treating you with God's grace and I'm trying to avoid harming you, and instead my goal is your joy in Christ, your spiritual growth and your joy. So he says, I can trust you. Now, just to labor this for a minute, this is, this is quite a, a list. I'm really impressed as I read this. And I'm challenged a bit to it, and I hope you are too. If you're a young gal or a, you're a young guy and you're thinking about dating someone or courting someone, or you are right now, would this list of motives fit your outlook towards that other person? Would, would you say, can you say before God, my conscience is clear. I'm here to serve your best interests. I won't tell you yes and no at the same time. You can trust my motives. This is a huge deal. And not just in that relationship, but that's certainly one. Uh, if you remember, years ago I taught through Ruth, and one of the lessons of Ruth was the consideration Boaz had for Ruth and Ruth's reputation. And he was very careful about the way he treated her so that if he was the one who could not end up marrying her, her reputation was not harmed. There was this kind of consideration for the other person. So if you're at the age or the stage of life in which you're thinking about a, a guy or a gal and you're thinking of dating or courting them, do these motives, do these speak to the way you're seeing them and you're interacting with them? 
But also, would your friends say, would my friends say that this describes our motives towards other people or those we go to school with or those we work with or for? Would they say we're bringing these kinds of motivations? Would, would those folks we're interacting with day by day, would they say I can trust him or her because this is their motivation and it's been proven over and over again? How about this? You know, as parents, um, we've talked about this quite a bit. I, I at least reference it because it's a huge issue in our day. You know, the church and, and therefore Christian families were losing uh, our kids to the world. You know, and statistically about 80% now they're saying when they leave evangelical families and churches, when they go to college, they check out of the church. They leave. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of issues that revolve around this, but sometimes I think part of the deal is this. As parents, we say one thing, but we do another. We do what Paul was being accused of, but didn't do. We talk out of both sides of our mouth to our kids, and, and kids are by no means innocent. Scripture's clear on that. We're all born with a sinful nature. But I do think children are quick to perceive hypocrisy. Dad says one thing, but he does another. You know, not only do I not trust dad, but whatever dad's invested in isn't important enough that he actually does what he says is important. I think as parents, we've got to be really careful that we don't set our kids up to say, I either don't trust mom and dad, or I don't want to follow what they say is important to them because they don't follow through. Or you can turn that around too. And if you're a child living at home under your parents' roof, Can your parents trust you if you say you'll do something? You know, by by repetition, and do your parents see that, boy, if he or if she says something, we can count on, we know it's going to be done. Are we trustworthy? Can others trust us? Whatever that relationship is. Some probing questions. I hope they're helpful. Uh, Jeb Stewart was a Confederate uh, cavalry general. He was a swashbuckling guy. He was a huge asset to the South. He led the South's cavalry, and one of the roles he had was reconnaissance. So he was responsible for getting information for the Southern Army and for General Lee especially. Well, he was killed in battle. And after his death, General Lee said of him this, he said, he never gave me a bad piece of information. If he said it, I could count on it. I trusted him over and over again. And Stuart is well known for a picture that was taken of him before his death. And he had written, I don't remember who it was to, but he'd written on it and he wrote, yours to count on. You can trust me. I'll be there for you. Jeb Stuart, great example. As people think of us, do we have these same kind of motives? And could people say about you and me, I trust them. If they say it, it's believable. And if we change our plans, if we have to, like Paul, there will be times we say this is what our plan is and we can't do it, something changes. Is that the exception or is that the rule? Can people count on us? Are we trustworthy? The second thing Paul said there was you can trust God, verses 18 through 22. Remember again, Paul's really concerned more than about himself is that the things he told them about God and Christ would be pitched. If he's rejected, the testimony he gave, he's afraid, will be compromised as well. So Paul's concerned that they know that they can trust God. He says there in verse 18, God is faithful, 
verse 19 and 20, when God says yes, He really means yes. You can count on it. Paul brings up sort of his ace in the hole, if you will, is the fact that God had sent Jesus. And think about this for just a second. Um, Paul says you can trust God because Jesus' presence on the earth, His incarnation, His death, and His resurrection, you can trust God because of that. And and I think there's two issues on this. The first is this. God had said all through the Old Testament He was going to send a Messiah. You know, from Genesis 3.15, the the Proto-Evangelium, the first declaration of God's good news to, to sinful, lost, dead humanity was the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. The first declaration of the good news, Genesis 3. But then you get more of this promise throughout the Old Testament. Key ones would be the promises to Abraham, that in his seed, singular, all the earth would be blessed. Or you get up to the promise to David, you're going to have a son who's going to sit on your throne and is going to rule Israel forever, kingdom that will never end. But you've also got the types or the pictures of this Messiah who God was promising in the Levitical offerings and the Passover sacrifice. I mean, you name it. God had said throughout the Old Testament over and over and over again. In fact, His last word in Malachi 4, the Son of Righteousness is going to rise with healing in His wings. That's the Messiah. And lo and behold, Jesus arrives on the earth. And Paul says all those promises God made in the Old Testament about His Son They were fulfilled. God kept them. Jesus showed up. The Messiah has come. And that means God fulfilled all those promises. You can trust Him. You can count on Him. But also, secondarily, the fact that Jesus had come meant also that God would fulfill all the promises not fulfilled in the incarnation and death and resurrection of Jesus. Old Testament or New Testament. In their day, the New Testament was being written. So Paul says, Jesus' presence on the earth was proof. It was God keeping His promises past tense, but it was also the guarantee that God would keep His promises future. For the future. You can count on Him. You can count on them. So whether we're thinking of promises to Israel in the Old Testament, if we're thinking of promises to us as a church in the New Testament, Paul says you can count on God. You can trust Him because He kept His promise in sending Jesus. And Jesus is in Himself, if you will, He says, God's yes on the things God had promised. Jesus is God's yes. Fulfillment of some and the guarantor of the rest. So Paul says, of God, yes, you can trust God. Because He kept all these promises and Jesus' presence is the promise that He'll keep the future ones too. In Romans 8.32, it touches on the same theme. Paul there says, The one that didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he also now with him not, sorry, with him freely give us all things? If God gave Jesus, then he'll fulfill every other minor promise. If he gave the son of his love, the thing, the one he cared about more than anything else, you know he's going to make good on every other minor promise. Now here's a question for you. Uh, How do we know what God's promises are? Uh, Paul is concerned for the Corinthians. You know, they're going to flip out. They're going to forget what what I said about God and what what mattered. But how do you and I know what God's promises are? So I'm thinking, just an example, Isaiah 40. 
So God says through Isaiah, those that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. That's a pretty good promise. But you know, if I don't read my Bible, I don't know what it is. I don't even know that I've got that promise. Or Philippians 4 was another one that came to my mind as an example. When I'm tempted to get anxious and fretful, if I'll take those things to God in prayer and thank Him, He'll take those things away and He'll give me His peace. But you know, if I don't read my Bible, I won't know about that promise either. But Paul says of Jesus, He's the proof that you can count on God. Because He fulfilled all those promises and Jesus is is the guarantor of the promises yet to come. And he also says this in verses 21 and 22. If you read 1 Corinthians, you know that the Corinthians put a whole lot of stock or a whole lot of store or importance in spiritual gifts. And Paul says to them, guys, when I proclaimed Christ to you, you believed and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You got something that you didn't have before. And you had spiritual gifts. And again, in 1 Corinthians, these are highly valued by this group. So Paul says you can look at your own life, you can see the fruit of the truth of the gospel I preach to you in your own conversion and in your presence of the Spirit and in the spiritual gifts that you and those in your church exercise. Those also are proofs that what I told you about Christ was true. You can count on God, Paul says. He kept His promise in sending His Son and having done that, it's as if God said, to all his promises, he put a stamp on them. Absolutely. They're good to go. You can count on them. So, for himself, Paul says, you can trust me because these are my motives towards you. You know, if you can trust a person's motives, they may get some things wrong here and there, but you can trust them. And he says of God, you can trust God also because God's kept those promises about a Messiah and the Messiah himself is God's stamp to say, yes, all those other promises, they're going to be good too. Jesus is the guarantor of them. I want to close with a story out of the Old Testament. It's from 1 Kings 22. It's a great story. Uh, king Ahab, one of the most wicked kings in all of the Bible, and was a king down, or excuse me, up in the northern kingdom of Israel after the kingdom had divided in two. King Ahab up, up in the north. And near the end of his life, Uh, He's a little ticked that in a battle with Aram, he lost a city called Ramoth-Gilead. And he wants to go take it back. And so his relative Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the southern kingdom, is unwisely paying a visit. And while they're seated together, Ahab's talking about the city, and I want to go get it, and uh, Jehoshaphat says, I'll go with you. My army will go with your army. Great. And he says, there's just one thing. I'd I'd like to hear from the Lord first. What does the Lord say about this? So Ahab says, hey, no problem. (laughs) He brings in all these prophets. And these prophets, every one of them, they're getting creative about it. They're saying, man, go up. God's with you. You're going to wipe them out. You're going to... No no problem. One guy makes horns. And he says, you're going to gore them. You're going to just take them out. Go Go get them. And Jehoshaphat says, well, well, gosh, you know, that's great, all these guys, but don't you have a prophet of Yahweh here? Because these guys, they don't, they don't serve Yahweh. They're the wrong kind of guy. Don't you have a prophet of Yahweh here? So Ahab says, well, we do, this one guy, but I hate him. Well, why do you hate him? 
Because Jehovah says, oh, don't talk like that. No, I hate him. Well, why? Because every time he speaks, he never says good of me. Every time he talks about me, it's bad. Joshua still wants to hear from him. So the guy leaves the court and he goes to get Micaiah, son of Imla. And so he tells Micaiah, okay, this is the deal. <clears throat> King wants to go up to Ramoth Gilead. All the prophets have said, go and conquer. And that's your line. And Micaiah says, well, <clears throat> this is the deal. Whatever God says, that's what I'll say. So he goes in. Ahab says, okay, Micaiah, what's the deal? And Micaiah says, go up and conquer. And you know, it's not what he says. I'm sure it was how he said it. So Ahab knows he's having him on. He says, no, really, what's the deal? So he says, okay, this is the deal. I saw all Israel. They were like sheep scattered across the mountains, and God sent them all home. And Ahab says, I told you. He wouldn't say anything good about me. And then Micaiah says, this is the deal. I saw in a vision God in heaven, and the host of heaven was around him. And God said, who shall I send to Ahab to get him up to Ramoth Gilead to end his life? And one spirit says this, another spirit says that. And God says to this one, okay, your plan, that's good to go. And this was the Spirit's plan. He says, I'll go and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And God says to that spirit, go and succeed. Well, Ahab is ticked. I mean, here's this Micaiah. He's doing the same thing he's always done. He's talking bad about him. He's not blessing him. He's not talking him up. He's not showing him proper respect like any good subject should says the same thing, man, it's going to be defeat, it's not going to be victory. And so before he leaves, Ahab says, hey, you take this guy, you go put him in jail, you feed him bread and water and make it a little of each only, and when I come back, I'm going to deal with him. But Micaiah says, if you come back at all, God hasn't spoken by me. And if you read the story just a few verses later, the battle's going on and see Ahab's being cagey and savvy. He disguises, how stupid is this of Jehoshaphat? He disguises the king of Judah as himself to avoid the enemy. And the enemy pursues Jehoshaphat until they see that's not him. And then in the story it says, a soldier from Aram, it just says, pulled his bow at a chance. He didn't aim at anybody. He put an arrow on his bow, he strung it, and he let it fly into the air. And that arrow went right in to Ahab and killed him. And he says, when I come back, Micaiah, I'm going to deal with you. And Micaiah's word is, no. If you come back at all, God hasn't spoken by me. Micaiah says, you can trust me. Even though this isn't good news, my words are true. And if you come back at all, God didn't speak by me. You can trust me. I'm telling you the truth. It's not happy news for you, Ahab, but get your house in order because this is the end. You know, it would have been easy to have hedged the truth for Micaiah, right? Powerful king, what might he do to me? Everybody else, it's me against all these people. They're all saying things. Who am I to stand up and say anything different? But Micaiah sticks to his guns and says, if you come back at all, God hasn't spoken by me. So Micaiah, whether you liked his message or not, you could trust him. Because his motive was, whatever God says, that's what I'll say. That was just like Paul. Whatever God says, that's what I'll say. So this whole thing about trust, 
You know, depending on your life, what it'll look like, all of us are going to face temptations and challenges when we don't want to tell the truth, when we want to hedge the truth, when we want to speak a little bit more than's true or a little bit less because it's about us, because maybe my life will be a little easier or I'll avoid some trouble or I can impress so-and-so if I hedge just a little bit one way or the other. But Paul says, you can trust me because you can trust my motives. Everything I'm doing towards you, it's before the sight of God. I do it as if God's looking down right now so that I can gain His approval. You can trust me. And he says, and you can trust God and His promises because He kept all these promises when Jesus came. And having sent Jesus, Paul says, man, if He gave you Christ, if He fulfilled those promises, you can count them for all the rest. But we want to have a reputation like Paul, and it really gets down to motivation. Why are we saying what we say to others? What is the motivation of our heart towards others? Is it about us? Or is it about them? Are we self-serving? Or are we like Paul? We're saying we're working with you for your joy. We changed our plans because we didn't want to hurt you. Because we thought if we came now, it wouldn't go well. You'd be damaged. And so, rather than do what we said, we changed our plans. Not because we're fickle, but because we were putting your good above our own. So we can trust Paul, Paul's words. We can trust God. And God help us that we prove trustworthy just like the Lord, just like Paul, just like Micaiah. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, it's so easy to be a mixed bag of motives, and all of us are at one time or another, to one degree or another. But Lord, would you do that transforming work in us by your word to make us more like your servant Paul, ultimately more like your son Jesus that the motivation of our heart would be to please you, would be to live each day in light of that day when we stand before you and you judge the quality of our lives. And Lord, we pray that you'll be able to say, well done, enter into your joy. God, I pray that you'd sustain our words, that you would help us, like Paul, to work for the joy of others, to be other-centered, that Lord, uh, just thinking about the two great commands that we would love you with all that we are so that we're trustworthy and that we would love others as ourselves so that we're trustworthy as well. Father, help us to adorn the gospel by telling the truth, by proving to be trustworthy servants like Paul. In Jesus' name, amen.